Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. My guest today is Zhao Lu Guo, here to discuss her new book, Radical, A Life of My Own. Like all of Zhao Lu's work, Radical is difficult to describe because it's difficult to categorise. It might be called a memoir, but its form, that of a lexicon, a dictionary, of words and images, which sits somehow in the cracks between English and Chinese, makes it unlike any memoir readers have encountered before. It's also a fascinating reflection on language, on literature, on memory, on vagrancy, on art, on nature and on what makes a home. But perhaps the central circle in this Venn diagram of concerns is love. It's different forms, how it arrives, what it does to us, and how it fares under imposed separation. Jalu Guo, welcome back to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. Um, so yeah, as I said in the introduction, this is a difficult book to, <laughs> to talk about because it goes in so many directions. And really, I would probably just say to our listeners, get the book and read it rather than trying to sort of unpick what the book is like from, uh, from my description of it. But could you just talk a little bit to begin with about how you arrived at this form of the book, this kind of this lexicon? Because was it the form that shaped the content? Was it the content that shaped the form or was it a sort of back and forth process between the two? Mm, I think you got the right <laughs> um, opening question because it, the form actually took over mm -hmm. in the very beginning and I wanted to write a private lexicon or etymology mm -hmm. of separations, layers of separation, but through a set of vocabulary. So the separation with my original language, Eastern language, Chinese language, and then separation with my, my native country, China, mm -hmm. and my parents, you know, the people who died in my, in my family, and also just culture, which, you know, it's very far away from me now, living in Britain. And then this book is set in New York. So it's a layer of separation. Build this collection of vocabulary or lexicograph. And I wanted to, to write this private, private dictionary, in a way, to describe um, a womanhood with particular stress on, on set of words. Mm -hmm. uh, for example including some words very much about male identity, like Ubermash, mm -hmm. you know, Nietzsche's concept. And then those words, for example, Germanic words, for example, uh, Leben Konstler, the living artist, mm -hmm. the, the, the art of living, you know, 
as as his living being. Um, so those concepts, they're, they're Germanic or Anglo-Saxon words and then some French words. And I want this book contain mostly Anglophone words, but some French, some Germanic, some Chinese words. And then the whole collection will sum up my personal experience um, in this layer of separation mm. through language, through landscapes, through cultures. Mm. You've used the word private twice, a private dictionary, a private lexicon. And that's one of the things I found so fascinating about this book was the way it's clearly a collection of things which are meaningful to you and which speak to you. And yet through that, it seems to take on a sort of a general meaningfulness, I think, to the readers as well. Was that a difficult line for you to tread? So, for example, when you are talking about certain concepts or certain writers to keep it to your private feelings, your private interpretations, your private responses to, for example, Walt Whitman, rather than trying to give a, a general theory or a general approach to, to these, these ideas? Mm, I think we'll come back to my very idiotic attempt to somehow <laughs> rewrite. Um, you know, as a, as a foreign author, you know, you, you often take some grand work, mm. you know, the Western work to think, well, if, you know, if I was an author, what would I do? For example, I had this very funny year just reading Dr. Samuel Johnson, Johnson's dictionary, mm-hmm. English dictionary, which was such interesting, tough in personal experience to look at Dr. Johnson's kind of analysis and definition of just this vast amount of words, Anglo-Saxon words. And then when I was in New York that year doing the visiting professor, I was look at Webster's dictionary mm-hmm. and how he treated American English dictionary as a sort of revolutionary attempt to be away from the colonial influence. Uh-huh. And me there, you know, as, as, as a Chinese author using Anglophone language to write and I had this obsessive fascination with language and mm-hmm. the use of a dictionary, I thought, well, yes, you know, Dr. Johnson and Webster, but they both from this kind of Anglophone sphere to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, English tried to establish certain kind of grand new identity, you know, from their time. But but what about a new immigrant at my time? You know, it came from faraway culture, you know, East culture, with the cultures based on the ideograms, non-alphabetical gram, mm-hmm. uh, grammar and, and the language. How would we rewrite <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, or kind of recreate... Um, a dictionary, you know, looking all like Anglo-Saxon words, but but what a way, you know, include a lot of kind of non-Anglo, non-European kind of words, mm-hmm. the roots. So that was really the moment uh, four or five years ago. I began this book when I was in New York, and I was idiotically in in you know Brooklyn in in, in the library in in New York uh, public library, tried to go through some Webster's mm-hmm. archives. And to look at his stress on certain American usage of the English language uh-huh. and then compare Dr. Johnson's. And then you would think, you know, I would produce thousands, thousands of pages of idiotic dictionary, <laughs> you know, as you say, the form first or content first. But then they realize they should be somehow the similar thing or the same thing uh-huh. if they could be. You know, I use dictionary as my way of narrative drive mm-hmm. but as words i suggest and on each page you know it should only contain you know, no more than two pages long of of the summary and then my own personal kind of injection of the meaning of that word mm-hmm. 
but that word should also somehow link to the Eastern linguistic tradition, you know. As so, therefore, this book, I think, a lot of perhaps journalists or reviewers, you know, without talking to me, they might find quite difficult, as you said, to pin down. You know,、mm-hmm. what is it? We could call this, you know, a book of etymology of separation、uh-huh. or private dictionary, but、uh, for me, it's really. It, The word radical here, double meaning. You know,、mm-hmm. Radical in Latin is radis, the roots of words,、uh-huh. and then the radical in Chinese is exactly we call the bushel. Exactly same meaning, the foundation, the roots of a building block of、mm-hmm. one Chinese ideogram,、mm-hmm. and and from that place, you know, radical exactly the same, the eastern, the western roots of the language.、Uh-huh. And that was the concept I was going to come onto. That idea of roots,、um, and I find it fascinating that you say you went to Dr. Johnson's dictionary and you went to Webster's dictionary, because both of these were essentially the first attempt to to formalize、um, the language. So this this written language that we have, and which in, to a certain extent works through these formalizations, you were drawn to both of these texts, which were the kind of the flags, in a sense, in the sand of. You know the the origins of these languages, and of course, dictionaries themselves are concerned with the origins of words, the etymology of of words. What is it? Do you think that drew you to this idea of getting to the roots, whether it be the roots of a a word, the roots of something in your life, or the roots of、uh, a culture, for example?、Mm. I mean, the idea of roots, radis or radical, is you know both metaphorical and physical.、Mm. Um, for example, I quoted quite quite a bit, you know, from D. H. Lawrence.、Mm-hmm. I think when he was forced out、mm-hmm. from England, you know, he was criticizing then <laughs> the English culture, the the divorce between the mind and the body. And I, I think use the quotation from D. H. Lawrence when Lady Chatterley's lover was banned,、mm-hmm. and he said that the is the, the loss of roots, you know, in the English culture, the the, the the upside down, you know, the roots up in the air, and the the, the body, the branches. Uh, are putting you know upside down, so therefore we lost the touch with the、mm. body, the roots,、mm. the soil of the English culture. Yeah, and I thought about that. It's almost like you know we are intellectually completely uprooted, you know, the, because there's such a large kind of intellectual drive in our life, you know, with technology, with imagination, that we no longer know, you know, where where our body belongs to,、mm-hmm. and especially. With mass immigration culture,、mm-hmm. I'm really one of the very typical cases. You know, from very agriculture traditional Chinese landscape.、Mm-hmm. You know, with my mother's side, they were tea farmers,、mm-hmm. and then my father's side, the fishermen. And I really grew up this racket、yeah. kind of culture. You know, with soil, with with beach, and then doing everything with hands to survive. And then suddenly, when I was thirteen, I came to London, and then came to Europe. And then with this book, I was in New York. You know, try to find back this this kind of zigzag landscape. You know, try to distangle or entangle myself back、mm-hmm. into that agricultural landscape. So when you read a bit, you know, something about you know after eight pages of the book, you know, there's a kind of lot, <laughs> lot of the quotation about plants,、uh-huh. right? And、um, I think gardening plants. It was somehow, you know, funny. Like take 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 hold of the book,、mm-hmm. and that I th- I think almost like my funny statement from those you know traditional dictionary. You know, they were into those 
really European original words, you know. Um, and I remember this one concept, um, I think Voltaire's words in this book, you know, mm. in the book, Voltaire said, you know, in, in those times, all we could care mm. is to look after our garden. Mm -hmm. So that's from Candide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I you do use that, that, that quotation, you know, just to take the book into somewhere which we can root ourselves, you know, with mm -hmm. our our linguistic identity and also with just memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, that's how maybe the publisher think, you know, this should be called as memoir. Mm -hmm. What should we call this book? I <laughs> I was asked. Well, it's funny because we've been having this discussion at the bookshop of where to shelve it. <laughs> and we haven't we haven't come to a conclusion yet. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what's one of the things that's exciting about it as well. It's not categorizable uh, in a sense. Um, I think there's, there's there's two things from what you just said. I I would love to use that title, you know, in I don't know in in on your, on your podcast or or a book cannot be categorized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it cannot be, you know, it would be just funny. I mean, it would be honor for uh -huh. me, you know. It's almost like I mean, you mentioned uh, Borges uh, a few times, and that sounds almost like a Borgesian concept of like the book, the book that cannot find its home anywhere in uh, in the library. And you've written it. Exactly. And, and I think it's amazing, you know, uh, Borges' fascination with Chinese language. Mm -hmm. And as Kafka, they, you know, they, yeah, they were yeah, very, yeah. very fascinated with traditional Chinese culture, or Asian Chinese culture. And the quotation, that section about, you know, embalmed beast. Mm -hmm. And I think Borges was studying Chinese when he was 17. Mm. And he found his earliest encyclopedia from China. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then, then I went on the same <laughs> yeah. kind of etymological journey, like like Bosa did, you know, but just like, you know, hundreds of years later, try to locate that. Mm -hmm. And I found in my Chinese knowledge, it's called Arya. So it's a collection of encyclopedic kind of reference book in ancient China, more than 3,000 mm. years old. But still, you can't locate back those weird translations, which Michel Foucault mm -hmm. re-referenced Borges, and I referenced Foucault uh -huh. in this book. You know, and I, I thought, this is a crazy book. <laughs> <laughs> who, who will read this book? <laughs> well, that's why you need booksellers on side, you see, because we will, we will go out and we'll hand sell it to, uh, to our readers. Um, I just want to come back to, to two concepts, picking up on what you were saying a moment ago. So this question of sort of the earth and getting back to the earth. And you use that term, I think, again, from Laurent, from, from Lawrence, um, nostalgie de la boue, the nostalgia for the, the mud, for the, for the soil. For the soil. Um, and uh, there's two interesting concepts there. There's obviously the, the mud, but also this question of nostalgia. Now, last time we were in a room together was at Hay Festival celebrating James Joyce's Ulysses. And of course, the, the nostos, the homecoming, is such a pivotal uh, subject to for, for Joyce and I feel that it weighs equally heavily on your book actually there is this 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 quest for 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 understanding what home is and finding it when the the original home is no longer available does that sound does that absolutely sound I mean absolutely I think it's almost healthy to say as long as we recognize we have lost home forever, mm -hmm. there's no more physical home to be found or reestablished. Mm -hmm. Then we're healthy. The, the, the most dangerous 
thing is we 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 still keep looking and mm-hmm. try to reclaim it physically mm-hmm. and that's almost like those conflict in the happening now you know yeah, with yeah. mass land grabbing all that and i guess you know for agriculture person like me you know immigrant from faraway place you know if i was you know persistently looking for that home probably you know what i do i mean you know it's different situation like i were having a land in portugal mm-hmm. you know to to have a us do there it's you know almost like i'm a global peasant you know should i get a a large piece of land somewhere mm-hmm. in the West in order to reclaim my lost identity. But I think this is idiotic kind of effort, you know, the attempt in vain because that nostalgia is really a poetic sorrow. You mm-hmm. know, you, you you could only claim in the poetic work rather than in, in the physical sense, you know. And I think once I saw that, then, you know, I am okay as an artist. But I still want to quote that mm-hmm. D.H. Lawrence, you know, the, the Lady Chatelet has to go with his low man, you know, in, in, in their estate in D.H. Lawrence's novel. And then she was being blamed as, as nostalgia de la boue, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at this, this desire to go to the mud, to mm-hmm. find its own original power. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting. And I think that that makes my book, you know, again, this weirdly, you know, it's almost like the attempt to, to return to this mm-hmm. meta- metaphorical Jim Joy sense of yeah. nostalgia in homecoming. There's one potential source for this sense of home um, that you identify in the book. Uh, you write, for a woman, a child can be a home. And I think particularly you write for uh, for an immigrant, for somebody who is not connected to the, you know, uh, by, by, by their history to the, 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 the land in which they live. A child can be a, a rooting um, uh, force as well. It can be, as you know, it's sort of almost like founding a new home. And yet one thing we find, and I guess this is maybe one of the central tensions in the book, is once you have established that home and once you have the child, the artist in you doesn't exactly feel restrained by it. But there's this, this definitely this kind of this this tension between the two concepts, between the sort of the enforced domesticity of being a mother mm-hmm. and the way that keeps you often within a certain radius of a place and the the sort of the i suppose the freedom of the the artistic quest you're on absolutely i think this female identity you know as as a woman as a mother here what is at stake when you are you know left out leaving the house leave this country you have reestablished yourself as a new woman it might be quite different from men you know leaving that house with, mm-hmm. where the child still there you know I, I think it's something for me was this huge kind of disembodiment when I when I left Britain um, I, I think that was a moment you know began a very personal part in this book and I think I wrote about you know the, the those 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 sections for example I think once Floromania you know Floromania the the obsession with with plantation with plants with mm-hmm. with garden growing and one is pollination and another section is about avocado storm and I remember eating one avocado on the plane you know try to get back to Britain from America and then I kept that huge stone on the plane in that eight hours flight. Mm-hmm. And I kept that huge stone. When I arrived in London, I planted that avocado stone. And it just, 
it, it grew. <laughs> um, and I wrote that in the book, you know, and I thought, my God, this is very powerful in a way, you know, the, the, whether you call it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's kind of witness of separation with my you know, the attempt, the new kind of life, or is it kind of witness of the death of, of the new possibilities, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I, I treat it very subtly. I do think a lot of people had that kind of experience. They, they would know, mm-hmm. understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so part of that, that life, so you, you go to the, the United States, to New York for, um, well, it's supposed to be um, a longer period, I think, but um, we'll come on to the pandemic, which, uh, which has kind of brings an abrupt end to, to, to your time in New York. And then there's this meeting with uh, the person referred to as E during the book, uh, and it's essentially the beginning of a, a love affair. Um, and there's one one moment where you talk about you write about falling in love, and I found this a very fascinating um, insight. You said, "Here is my thinking about falling in love. When we fall in love with someone, it could be seen as an auto-erotic act. It's falling in love with the idea of a good self. I see the idealistic self in the desired person. That's how the person in love functions. And I wonder, concerning the the story with E." Um, do you think a big part of the sort of the impetus in a way for that story was falling in love with the the free version of yourself that you were discovering or the freed perhaps version of yourself that you were rediscovering in New York? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I wondered how to write about the topic of autoerotism mm-hmm. for women. Mm-hmm. I think for men, you know, it's I think you can read so Obviously, you know, from Rimbaud, from mm-hmm. all these big authors, or, you know, especially in their youthful time. Mm-hmm. But how to write about it for women also, especially when you're not, you know, in a prime time, but the, 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 it's a strong kind of physical existence in your daily life. And I I think for me, I, it's it's definitely something to do with autoerotic kind of, connection with the other mm-hmm. and so in, in a way it doesn't matter the the the, the, the opposition you know the, the person there there i say object you know from women's point of view the man can be the object mm-hmm. uh it's really this self-realization from this painful incompleteness mm-hmm. right as individual and in my case as a woman mm. and one of the um one of the reflections this gives rise to and you've used the word already and i'm going to to probably to, to mangle it now is this idea this German word of the Lebenskunstler Lebenskunstler is that yeah <laughs> um, so perhaps for our listeners who perhaps like me are not familiar with this concept would you be able to give a little bit of a, an explanation about mm. about what it is I think in this book I referred to quite a few sections to to Goethe's novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goethe's novel, it's the, the, the English title, one of the versions called it, The Elective Affinity. Mm-hmm. And it's it's experimental narrative to, about four person and then, you know, a couple, man and woman, and another couple, man and woman, and then somehow become A, B, C, D. So the reorganization of A goes to C and B goes to D. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> it's, it's a crazy, strange novel. You know, it's like Goethe's mind thought experiment about mm. the combination of the elements in in human life um attraction and a de- distraction could mm. i say those words or repulsive energy when you reorganize the the partnership 
And and so one one concept from that book is that Lebenskunstler. So especially for women who doesn't create artwork、mm-hmm. or who doesn't become a political figure or. Or, or you know, or someone not in a social place to claim her identity. Then, why not this woman's great Lebenskunstler, meaning someone live to create life as a piece of art,、mm-hmm. right? So this is not talking about those you know body artists like the the Japanese artist、uh, Yayoi Kusama、mm-hmm. I mentioned in the book. It's just to talk about a woman who doesn't create it. The supposed, the conventional artwork, but treat her own life as this incredible art, art project. You know the way you cook, the way you you have tea, the way you sleep, the way you you grow plants, the way you deal with your neighbors. And I think this is so kind of overlooked historically. You know,、mm-hmm. the women's identity is so not existent. If a woman just live like、mm-hmm. a living constantly, you know, yeah, and yet、yeah. this concept is. Incredible male concept,、mm. almost you know. So in my section, I had to correct it to、mm. make a female version of yeah, that yeah, German yeah. word, you know. So, and in a way, you know, this this word, the German word, could be the title for this book as、mm. well. You know, it, what does this book try to to innovate、mm-hmm. in a way? You know, is is by life is not about doing. You know, it's undoing, it's、uh-huh. unthinking, right? It's, it's, On you know, on debate is、yeah. you know disentangle from this、uh, the heat of、yeah. of our social life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's、so、completely undo, and then you become the true this Lebenskunstler, you know, a,、mm. a person living for the life as a, a great art,、mm-hmm. right? So we are not you know entangled with capitalistic or political power struggle, all that、mm-hmm. stuff, you know. And、um, I thought a lot about that. So so that novel by Goethe was was so much. Referenced and also another quote. There's one section starts from the the, the word X,、mm-hmm. and I thought about you know what is X because in Samuel Johnson he said X doesn't exist in Anglo-Saxon word. You know in his time was right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's it's、uh, you know from Latin <laughs> to Spanish, right?、Mm-hmm. Starts from X as a name, and、uh, I also look at the Webster's dictionary. You know、mm-hmm. it, it doesn't exist. Then I thought about my own name. In the Western way, starts from X. Of course, Shalu. And then I thought about this incredible painting by by surgeon, singer surgeon,、mm-hmm. the Madame X. Yes. And this beautiful, sexy, but dubious kind of portrait of unknown women.、Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about all this kind of strange identity, you know, as unknown as X, as other,、mm-hmm. as women, you know, or as a living constellation,、mm-hmm. right? So they are connected together yeah, through this yeah, book. Yeah. There's a kind of strange paradox, isn't there, with sort of identifying people who embodied this concept because they often don't leave a trace in a way. There's almost like the the artist is a sort of a failed version of this because they have the you know they they've channeled the art into into their writing or into their painting, and so you go through a few sort of possibilities. You say like Walt Whitman, Colette, Marcel Duchamp, Neil Cassidy, and I suspect perhaps of all of them. Neil Cassidy might be the closest, and because he was mo- obviously memorialized by Jack Kerouac rather than, I mean, he did write some things, but that wasn't his sort of that wasn't his art in a way.、Um, and it also put me in mind of, and I think it's in the Henry Miller book Sexus, where he talks about how, essentially, if he if he was living well, there would be no need for him to to create art. There would be no need for him to write. And in fact, the fact that he does this. Is in some way 
a representation of his failure. Absolutely. Is I that mean, something you would agree with? Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's almost like this book also, you know, I guess in China, if I wrote this book in Chinese, it would be put on the art critics section, you mm-hmm. know, kind of. <laughs> I mean, because in Chinese language, I wrote a few art critics book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is the first attempt I, I wrote in English, you know, and returned to my Chinese habit of the way I, how I wrote. Um, it's really about you know the relation between art and a hu- and a, and a way individual, and I think it's always the art is kind of the, the, this large missing part of the reality we haven't owned mm-hmm. or possessed. Mm-hmm. So this is very much Jean Paul Sartre said you know to live is to recount mm-hmm. or to live for real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he had chosen when he was very young to recount, mm-hmm. and that, that was almost a fateful decision for him. If Sartre was a different man, you know, looked different or had a different childhood. He might choose to live rather than uh-huh. to recount. Then he wouldn't be the Sartre we know these days, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I quoted in my book, I think, I think uh, uh, Nietzsche's first lover, Lo Salome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this Germanic woman as this kind of inspiration, completely free spirit mm-hmm. for, for Nietzsche. You know, she wouldn't kind of, you know, kind of go into that kind of marriage proposal, mm-hmm. all this conventional idea of, of womanhood. And she lived completely her life. is so unusual, you know, throughout her life. Um, so I thought about those references. You know, they are the spirits for, for my book. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just, just as a quick aside, this may be a stupid question and we can we can edit it out if, if there's not really an answer to mm-hmm. it. But is there a sort of a mirror version of this book that could be written in... Chinese. I'm just so curious because the book, as I said in the introduction, seems to sit between the the Chinese language and the English language. And obviously a direct translation wouldn't perhaps work because so much of it is about explaining to English readers how chi- the Chinese language works. But could a, could you imagine a, a similar book written in the other sense? I could imagine this book would be written in in Chinese language. It would be again exactly what I call it radical, which uh-huh. the literary translation is bushou, meaning the roots, the 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 partial foundation of one ideogram, mm-hmm. a character, a word. So in Chinese language, it might work, but the reference in this book is is this huge collection of Eastern Western culture reference. So mm-hmm. it does require a reader has sort of, you know, both kind of knowledge and both words. Mm-hmm. But then I think my book should be very typical, a kind of new generation who grew up exposed to, to both East and West and South and North mm-hmm. culture that has this urgency to say, you know, where where we are or can we just look at, you know, the, 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 the inference, the realities we inhabited and say what what life is rather than making this incredibly, you know, fabricated narrative about a one-sealed traditional event, mm-hmm. right? So, again, you can say, you know, this is kind of, you know, a positive Derrida kind of <laughs> experiment, you know, on, on what we are, you know, completely fragmented, but again, is this pieces together in a very solid way, you know. I don't want to say those words, but I do think we have authentic way you know, formed together after, you know, 20th century, after the mass migration, mm-hmm. the inference, the, the cultural reference in our life is so strangely, wonderfully, chaotically put in together. 
And I think the one anyone who reads this book will say, "My God, <laughs> here we went back to Lao Tzu, to Dao De Jing, and to Taoism, and then next page we refer back to to Christianity, or, or you know, so you know, maybe you should actually live in in this mm-hmm. kind of double or multiple dimension." Mm-hmm. World. Yeah, and that's one of the the concepts that comes up is this idea. Um, I think it's from Deleuze and Guattari about the sort of the minor literature, um, which was admittedly a concept I'd heard but had never really understood before before reading this book. But the sense I get of it, it's not the sense of minor as in insignificant, but sort of literature written from a sort of minority perspective within a a larger. A larger language, and it really struck me as that sort of feels very much like the the literature of our time in a way. Like this is this is where the the most interesting uh, ideas, the most interesting writing is coming from. Is people sort of like yourself, who's writing maybe not in their their first language or having migrated from one country, one continent to another, and it seems to sort of to break open our thought processes and our and our, our preconceived ideas in a way that perhaps somebody writing in a, let's say, in a major form in that in that um, language would not really be capable of. Absolutely. And I think we, we do share, I mean, you and me, you know, the, our our life, off-centred life, you know, mm-hmm. you as kind of expat or, you know, non, non-native living mm-hmm. in France, yeah, you know, from yeah, Anglophone yeah. world, and the way you wrote, even though you write in, in Anglophone English, mm-hmm. but then... The cultural reference, the 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 style of narration, is so away from the mainstream mm-hmm. Anglophone literature. Right, and I think this we share. You know, I mm. come from Chinese culture. I use this strange Anglophone kind of linguistic kind of narrative to write, but have this hybridity from the Chinese mm-hmm. language and the cultural background. So the way we enter this this huge language, the English language, in in such a strange in and out way, mm. right? And I really felt incredibly inspired by those lines which I quoted in the, in the book, you know, and I think in, in, in his essay originally was referring to Kafka, you mm-hmm. know, writing in high German away from Czech, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but I think that's, that is, you know, of course, perfect example at that time, mm-hmm. but imagine, uh, you, know, the, 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 you know, a Nigeria author writing in French or Japanese author writing in German, you know, the, the Chinese author writing in strange English, you know, and I think that we, we asked writer, authors, cutting through this huge language, mm-hmm. the Western dominant languages, mm-hmm. let's say, in such a strange way. And in my background, is from one major language, Chinese, to another major language, mm-hmm. which is English. And I just look at my place in Anglophone literature. You know, I'm aware, you know, what, what I need to do. You know, if I still have some kind of little writer's ambition, mm-hmm. you know, my place linguistically and culturally, I do need to find my own roots, my radicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the final thing I'd like to talk about is this idea, um, and you use two words for it in, in the text, or two, two, two ways of describing a particular concept. So the concept of the vagrant. And so the, the vagrant in the sense of uh, Rimbaud was a, was a vagrant. And generally this term has quite negative connotations. But there's also the sense of it in ornithological bird watching context where it's a sort of a technical term about a bird that leaves a flock and then crucially has a capacity of rejoining the flock and then right at the end of the book you use you talk about this concept of this lovely phrase um of sort of to, to ramble on uh which you know you reference the the led zeppelin song um of, of the of the same title um and so i was wondering to finish might you be able to just reflect 
on this idea of vagrancy, of rambling, particularly, I guess, alongside that idea we talked about earlier of of home. Like, can can these two concepts exist side by side in in one person? Mm. I have to, I think, tie those big issues into a woman's journey. You know, mm. if a woman who refused to be confined in in a traditional society, you know, let alone a, a, a domestic life, mm-hmm. um, what's her journey would it be? You know, also linguistically, culturally, she tried to transpass mm-hmm. or reestablish a, a kind of a chaotic forest with with many paths, going to lead her to somewhere would be, you know, calling that's her home. So I quote, that's why I think first I quote Mary, uh, Mary Sherry's mother, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, because she was this really pioneering mm-hmm. feminist from that time, you know, went along to the north, to Scandinavia and to, the, to Italy, you know, her wild journey and very short life. And then again, come back to Mary Shelley's life, you know, it's such a kind of really wild, but almost... Uh, almost fragile in a sense because from that time it, it was not sustainable for women artists. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm not putting myself on that map, but I felt like we are all somehow struggling to find this a certain wilderness and wildness in our female existence because we express mm. we express certain kind of wild things, you know, and then we physicalize and exercise those wild dreams. Um I think that is hugely dangerous for for female experience, mm-hmm. especially when you have established home and have children. Why it should be more dangerous than the male existence? Because our morality, our traditional society has such a weight mm-hmm. to judge a woman's existence. I guess, you know, with my book, I try to challenge or finding kind of different answers for that way of being to say, you know, here are the paths we went through, you know, from this to that, from this pioneer to 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 now ordinary beings, you know, what we have gone through linguistically, culturally. And this is the landscapes we we are trespassing, you know, let's let's facing it. And mm-hmm. here's a dictionary for all these personal um references. Mm-hmm. That feels like a perfect place on uh, on which to, to leave it, Jolu. It's been such a pleasure today. Obviously, we have plenty of copies of Radical available at Shakespeare and Company. If you're not in Paris, you can pick one up from our uh, website or from your local independent bookstore, wherever you may live. If you're quick, we have some signed copies in stock uh, right now. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Jolu, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you. Thank you, Adele. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.